1: Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
0: Welcome to Facebook. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. So welcome to another edition of Face to Face. I'm here with my guest, uh, Mark Bowald, who is the uh, Associate Professor of Religion and Theology. Sounds a little intimidating at Redeemer University College. Uh, He's been teaching here for about nine years and probably doing a few other things, which we might get into today. He's the Theology Editor for Christian Scholars uh, Review, and he has published uh, fairly recently. I know he's got a few things in the hopper, which he might talk about. But he's published a book uh, called Rendering the Word in Theological Hermeneutics, Mapping Divine and Human Agency as its subtitle. Mark allen Bowell, published by Ashgate Publishing, um, I think in two thousand and seven. Sounds, neb- I mean, wow, sounds pretty intimidating as well. Anyway, thanks for uh, thanks for joining <laughs> yeah, us today, Mark. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, yeah.
1: thanks for having me. So, so what are we talking about today? We're talking about post secularism. Post what the heck is post secularism? Well, tell? that is the uh, response that I quite often get in Canada. Yeah. Um, and there's a deep, there's an irony to that because the most successful Canadian philosopher is Charles Taylor. Charles Taylor is is far and away probably the most accomplished Canadian philosopher, and Charles Taylor is actually the father of sort of the father of post secularism. He's written a book called A Secular Age, which is has created considerable waves around the world with the exception of a few places, and one of those exceptions is Canada.
0: Hmm, interesting.
1: <laughs> and the, the basic idea behind post-secularism is that after the Enlightenment, we have uh, certain perceptions about different spheres of life. So we have a political sphere, and we have, might have a religious sphere. And people might have lived their lives in, in these different spheres, but there's a perception that that they might not have any concrete or substantive relationship to each other, and the most sort of the most obvious example of that is the separation, the relationship of church and state. Right. So, in its in its secularism, in its as Taylor maps it out in a secular age, uh, in its most sort of obvious and popular form, purports or promotes the idea that your religious beliefs. Have nothing to do or should have nothing to do with politics. And he shows how historically that is sort of never been the case and has argued subsequently based on, that, on, on tracing that history. Uh, and others have followed him, many others who follow, have followed him in this argument, that, that the, uh, the, uh, the notion so hang that So, those... to
0: get this straight, so, so Taylor's saying it's impossible to separate church and politics.
1: He's saying essentially yes that Church there is state. a that it is a that the idealist notion of them being separate spheres is impossible.
0: Right. So would it then be fair to say you can't really separate anything? Is that in a way sort of post secularization this notion that um, it's all connected
1: in some way? Yes. So that now that doesn't mean that you can't talk about these as discrete entities. It simply means you have to recognize that the idea of separating them. Separating the religious from the political uh, in any kind of absolute fashion can't can't is unhelpful and actually distorts how you understand certain things.
0: Well, it's kind of isn't it a little like uh, at least what came to my mind is the nature nurture debate. It's not one or the other. Yeah, sure. It's got to be one. It's got to be a bit of both. It's not all genetic. It's not all environment. Yeah, sure. It's yeah. right. Is it that that is that what we're talking about here?
1: Absolutely. There's there's all kinds of bifurcations, dualisms, that right philosophy and theology have historically sort of sort of, promoted or, and in, in various ways popular, uh, have been popularized. And in, inevitably those, those things have then later on been questioned. And this is just an, another example of that. Yes.
0: Can I, so just be, sort of my own little philosophical uh, bone to pick here, and I'd love your thoughts on it before we get back to Taylor. Did, did Plato and Descartes really screw us over? I mean, are we in trouble because of that dualistic uh, thing, this either-or distinction that so many other philosophers have kind of talked about? And I think the existentialists have really grabbed hold of and said, hang on a minute, It's, it's about relationship, really you know, in, in, a lar- in, a, in, a, in a lot of ways. Freedom, choice, responsibility. It's not about yeah. these truths that are out there that we're going to capture and yeah, find yeah. one day. Yeah, yeah. No, no, hang on. It's, it's all, like, you know, it's all connected. We're, yeah. we're in this together, yeah. you know, which is kind of my message, I suppose, with what I do in my work. Um, but I just wonder what you think about it from a philosophical
1: or a theological perspective. I think you have people that become the boogeyman of of a generation. So Descartes took a took a huge beating, obviously <laughs> right. in in certain circles. Plato still does it at times. Um, I think what you, my own my own feeling is that when you look at these movements historically, the phil- movements of 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 philosophy, um, ideas about about social structures and politics that you that you're talking about a, a, the historical process which is kind of an ebb and flow or kind of a, a pendulum kind of swinging back and forth so people will use Plato and Descartes will use certain kinds of conceptions in order to explore questions and those those conceptions become codified or or become rigidly held in such a way which ultimately is on can't serve those questions and then subsequent generations begin to pick them apart so you have a kind of a back and a, i think a back and a forth that way and right now i think one of the primary characteristics of postmodernism, of which post-secularism is kind of a part sure yep. is the questioning of all of these categories which we inherited from the enlightenment from the 19th century from the philosophical movements in the enlightenment so we have a, a, a swinging back, if you will, can, can, towards that. Can you
0: can you define the Enlightenment in a in a couple sentences? Oh I know that's goodness, ridi- that's ridiculous.
1: Um, but a
0: reductionism of the worst kind. But what is a, a, a value of, of 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 a certain kind of knowledge over faith? Is that a fair fair way to define it? Would a theologian define it that way? Yeah,
1: one of the one of the things that comes out of the out of the Enlightenment is this idea that human beings, what is what is, what is sort of uh, the most valuable thing or the most important thing or the most trustworthy thing that, that uh, comes out of human activity is our ability to think and reason and s- certain scientific approaches which might be characterized as sort of objective. So objectivity, objective science, those are the most reliable things. Um, and those things become then valued over other dimensions of what it means to be human. So our our intuition, our feeling, our, right. the creative, our, our creative capacities, these
0: kinds of things. So so all of a sudden, mathematics takes precedent over a film uh, in, in in a in an undergraduate program. Oh sure, right. right. Oh that's which def- we, I want to get back to later because we both have a love. I didn't tell you about Mark. He's got a love for film, and, and we both do. But 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 yeah. So so that's kind of uh, um, would you say a latent expression of the enlightenment project still to this day. Yeah. Oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah.
1: And, and there yeah. are there are, and when we talk about postmodernism, I think we need to be careful not to not to think of it as as a distinct kind of historical moment or period. It's really more about the devolving or the kind of the the unraveling of the of the modern period. And in that way, there are lots of whenever you have an unraveling, if you have a sweater that's unraveling, there's still an awful lot of the sweater, the, the threads, a lot of the threads are still intact, a lot of, you know, a lot of things about your sweater you might still love, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. however it's starting to be frayed, it's starting to show some wear and some fraying around the edges, and and I think that that's probably a good picture for what postmodernism is, it's sort of the unraveling of your favorite Christmas sweater, which is the season, <laughs> right. right? That'll be the sound bite, you realize that, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. This yeah. So <laughs> says Mark yeah. Bowald of
0: Redeemer University. <laughs> So, in a sense then, have we not just unpacked this notion of, of post-secularization then? And, I mean, you've unpacked it, but as we've talked a little bit about faith and reason and, and one way of knowing over another way of knowing being preeminent, I suppose, in our culture. Yes. Uh, I guess Taylor's saying, hang on a minute, we haven't lived that way. So, yes. So, let, let's actually...
1: Uh, and we don't, not, not only have we not lived that way, but we, what, we don't live that way. Now right, there's right. a now there's or, a famous or, and book we can't
0: and we can't live we that, can't live that we way. We can't live that
1: way. Um, there's a famous book by by uh, a, a French author Bruno Latour which is t- titled We Have Never Been Secular. I mean, that's the title of the book and he's and he sort of he's another not to be confused with Bruno on Tour. No. No right, that's okay. right. Or or Bruno Mars right or any of the, right so. <laughs> um, but uh, so so th- there are lots of people that are sort of mounting this argument. And it really what we've really been talking about here are views of anthropology. So the Enlightenment has a picture of what it means to be human, and post-secularism is now saying that picture is false and actually misleading in certain regards with how people actually live their lives and with, by extension, how how political entities, how, how governments should go about their affairs how they do in fact go about their affairs and how they should go about their affairs which was the with the the um focus of the paper that paper that i that that uh that i wrote that was contributed to the a book that we're hoping to get published that you and i are hoping what oh right yes of course yeah that that book yeah (laughs) (laughs) should i plug it Sure. What's what was the, tit- the title? The title, one, the you working title,
0: on? is "Irreconcilable Differences." That's right. And it's going to be a, a, a collection of essays from about about sixteen different uh, uh, writers, uh, authors, academics, and a couple from the U.S., mostly Canadian. And they're going to be um, and the irreconcilable differences are between between philosophy and theology, or philo- at least yeah, we philosophy we and faith. Uh, yeah, sure. And, and philosophy and faith, a couple of the, uh, the essays are very sort of faith-based. Others are not. Uh, some of them come from a very scientific perspective. And uh, we got a real nice uh, group. So we're, we're a group of papers. So, yeah, we're, we're looking forward to that. And you were kind enough to give us a paper. You didn't get to present at the conference, though. We did a conference for five years. And, and, uh, but hopefully we'll, uh, we'll revisit it down the road. So there you sure, go. Shameless sure. plug. Uh, we'll be talking about it again in the future. So, yeah, so then, so then that answers that question. Of course, there's a dialogue between philosophy and theology, right? Yes. Of course, it, there's a dialogue a, between religion and politics. What absolutely. A, what are you a moron? How yeah, can, yeah, there, how can yeah, there not be? Yeah. So, so tell us a bit more about that, and, and how that um, is is playing <clears> out <throat> in, in a substantive way, or is playing out maybe in a positive or a negative way around the world, and why it's not in Canada. It's well. So there's a lot of questions there, but anyway,
1: there I I have my own suspicions as to why post-secularism is 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 uh mysteriously not talked about or discussed in canada um but i think that's a that's a a larger much larger conversation that we don't have to get into at the moment however um i'll I'll give you an example of what really something that really prompted my attention yeah yeah um just a few years ago we were having when we when we had our last provincial election here on here in ontario i was watching television and there was a round table discussion with some eminent uh, philosophers and and uh, faculty people from well-known Canadian institutions. I won't mention their names. Can you tell us what um, they rhyme with? What's that? Can you tell us what they <laughs> rhyme with? <laughs> uh, I, I better okay. not. <laughs> yes, I better I'm not. Kidding. But uh, Whatever. Um, at one point in the conversation, uh, the issue of whether, whether candidates, political candidates who hold to religious beliefs... Should in any way, shape, or form allow those religious beliefs mm, to inform right, right. the way that they think? <laughs> I know that's an awesome question. And one of the and one <laughs> of the panelists who get very prominent university located in a very large city in, in Ontario said at the end at the end of, the, of that brief discussion. Well, it made this this offhand comment. It just said, uh, "Well, everybody knows that religion has nothing to do with politics, right?" And the sort of the, the bluntness of that, and and the naivete behind that, it's struck me. It's struck incredibly naive. Me. I mean, you it's can't you can't look at world history. You can't even look at current events around the world, and and make any and make that claim without without your tongue deeply in your cheek. Right. I mean, you have right. to you have to qualify that in so many infinite myriad ways. Right. Um, Unless he was just playing the gadfly, which uh, by the sounds of it, I don't think he was. No, no, no. Yeah. I think I think it's, it's, I think it's, a it's still it's still a an idea that is i think very widely held and cherished in canada and um the rest of the world is sort of waking up to the fact that uh it's an untenable position um and that the conversations between the religious spheres and the political spheres are implicit in a variety of ways now one of the one of the ways the paper the paper that i wrote one of the ways i explored how that is implicit is in the administration of tolerance. So any government, the the basic idea here is, any government which seeks to administer tolerance, specifically religious tolerance, among its constituents, among its citizens, has to make certain decisions about what can be permitted and what can't be permitted in the religious behavior of those citizens. Now, the minute you make a decision about what is permitted or not permitted in someone's religious practice, you're making a theological judgment. There's a, a, prof- a well, a professor who is kind of a rising star among post secularism. Her name is Sabah Mahmoud, and she teaches at uh, down in um, in San Francisco. At uh, oh, what's the univ- one of the main universities down there in, in San Francisco? Help me. Um, I don't know. We can edit this out maybe later, maybe. Um, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Um, anyway, she her she wrote. Listeners can listen can look up the name. How do you spell it? The name? Sabah Mahmoud. S A B A M A H M O U D. So okay. Sabah Mahmoud. Um, I'll think of it later. But anyway, her she's made done some work on studying how the U.S. government try, has tried to develop certain uh, policies and procedures related to the idea of religious tolerance and has shown how in the documentation, in the reliance on think tanks, that that there is there's, there's sort of this very strong and overt theological character to all of this reflection that went into the development of these so-called public secular policies. And she basically says, well, you know, this is just the way it is. Now, now the interesting thing about this is, is that when you look at the documents, and one of the documents um, um, comes out the out of the RAND Corporation. And if uh, people want to look that up, they can look that they up. They should. <laughs> um, in the U.S., is that um, R-A-N-D. the RAND pop? The RAND Corporation is a is a think tank which is occupied by a lot of former politicians and philosophers and such. And they develop documents and recommendations to for the U.S. government. Anyway, um, in this document, you have uh, w- when you read this and you see how it's describing, for example, th- for example, the the how how Muslims read scripture. That there's this from as a trained theologian, you can see how um, this reflection and, and the and the conclusions they they've drawn about how Muslims read scripture is very sort of naive and shallow. And you can, and and it begs the question: Well, why didn't they, if they're making those kinds of uh, uh, studies or those kinds of uh, um, descriptions of how Muslims read scripture, why didn't they consult the professionals? Why don't they go to imams and why don't they go to people who actually understand this much in mm-hmm. a much more uh, uh, qu- uh, careful fashion? Right? Uh, how, why don't they go to those people and ask them? Um, and but in order to do so, but see that would see begin to violate some of those boundaries, right. those cherished right. boundaries right. between church and state. Can a government go to the Mormons in the U.S. and say, "Listen, we want your advice about this"? Can they go to the evangelicals, right? A very a very powerful right, a very powerful constituency in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, can the U.S. government, in the course of developing policies about religious tolerance, could they go and? And, and ask evangelical leaders, evangelical theologians to consult with them to help them sort out these things. I mean, that idea would mm-hmm. strike at anyone in Canada and, and probably still most people in the US as sort of um, very uncomfortable and uncomfortable, and, yeah, sure. absurd, counterintuitive, all sure. these things, yeah, yeah. But that shows you, I think, that, that small illustration shows you the awkward position that is always there in the relationship of politics and religion. And so now that, now the question that arises is how do you resolve that? And the enlightenment would propose well you just reinforce a strict boundary between the two. However, that leads to all kinds of naive assumptions on both sides. It leads to bad policy on on the government side. It leads to a kind of a, a, a separatist uh, independent kind of mentality among the religious constituents under under the purview of that government um, you don't have the kinds of dialogues publicly that you should have about these things which should be saturated with and colored with the religious perspectives and commitments of the people
0: is it uh is this a personal distinction is it a collective distinction so state uh, religion and, and, and state uh, uh religion and politics should be separate um, and the statement that we all know, everybody knows, that you know, you can't bring the two together. This this panelist uh, is, are they referring to you know, do what you want to do on your own time? So if you you know, yeah. you know, would they go that far to say that that even that doesn't influence politics, or are they actually saying, look, we can't, we can't. Interview, we can't do a needs assessment or a gap analysis with a Mormon group, or, mm-hmm. you know. We, so, is it a collective kind of distinction? Do you think, uh, or is it also personal saying, "We all know that it doesn't have an impact," which is, to me, even more absurd. Does that Does that question make sense? Sure. Yeah.
1: We, um, it's. It's. We all know that it shouldn't. Is, right. is really the argument right, right? That's that's happening there, right. and so it's it's a criticism in this in the case of of the, that round table. It's a criticism that's being directed at individual individuals who want to become involved in the political process. No, right. you should leave that stuff at home. Right. Leave it at home. Leave it at home. It's it's it doesn't belong. Now, if I can if 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 I can sort of shift our attention and, and approach this from a different from a different angle, I can I think pretty easily demonstrate the absurdity of that kind of position. So let's begin with just the idea of the existence of God. If God doesn't exist, all right. Just for the sake of argument, if God does not exist, then the conversation we're having is moot, right? Now, if God does exist, which by and large, the vast majority, right, of, of humans historically and presently believe that God exists, if God exists, don't you think God would be interested in what goes on politically, in the world? I mean, of all the things God, a, a God might be interested in, of all the things that might, you know, draw His attention or His concern.
0: I guess it depends on the kind of God that you you uh, exactly. bow, bow sure. down and worship, right? I sure, mean, it really does because if you've got a loving, graceful God, or if you've got a, an, a, an angry God, you know, a violent, angry God, then I guess I guess it's a little different. You know, I would almost suggest, Mark, even if God doesn't exist, this is still a very relevant conversation for mm. the time being, right? Because yes. of the fact we've got four and a half billion. Religious folk. In That's the right. World, That's how right. How the heck do we actually attend to this for the next fifty to hundred years while we be truly become this post secular society? That's right. Right. Or That's anti right. Uh, religious society or whatever you want to call it. That's so right. If we're going to push God out eventually. But well, uh, okay, one hundred and fifty years it's going to take, or two hundred, let's say, maybe yeah. in the yeah. history of, of recorded history. Yeah. Um, we still, it's still an issue today. Yeah, four, and yeah. half, four and a half billion people believe in some kind of a creator. That's right.
1: That's right. So even if, yeah, you're right, even if even if we concede, you know, you might concede that point for yeah. argument. Yeah, it's, it's still very it's relevant. It's still there. It's still relevant. Yeah. That's right.
0: I mean, episodes, I mean, I I've, I love Homeland. Uh, mm-hmm. We've been, we've been yep. watching, we watched the first series of Homeland, Elizabeth and I, and fell in love with it. And, I mean, it's a real interesting mix. And I'd have to go back and watch it now after our conversation. But there's some really interesting bits of business in how, how they're weaving in the understanding of, sort of uh religion into this you know is it really about religion or is this really about hate yeah is this really about anger was that really a religious distinction that was made there or a christian or a, a muslim distinction no no that was just about anger and hate that's why they did you know and mm-hmm. i i find mm-hmm. it pretty uh, provocative actually and really entertaining as well um it's uh it's pretty pretty interesting
1: how they're weaving the 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 message well, an American typically typically uh, shows produced in the U.S. are far more willing to explore those
0: questions. Right, right, right. Yeah, seem to be. I was going to ask you the question too. I mean, is, is the bandwidth in uh, politics uh, for for these types of questions? I mean, in the in the favor of uh, or in the name of homeland security? I mm-hmm. suppose mm-hmm. these conversations would be allowed to happen. But if you want to talk about a regional or a municipal or a statewide policy, we can't have these kinds of religious conversations. But if you want to protect, so I wonder what, you know, well, if that's well, true, what, I wonder what, what kind well, of assumptions are going
1: on there. Sure. What you're gesturing at is, is um, a kind of a remnant feature of, of, of secularism in that those conversations related to homeland security happen in camera, right? They happen behind the scenes. They're not public. They're not public right conversations they happen when people are tied to chairs Ex- yeah sure <laughs> or and behind closed doors yeah. and you know those and um so it's interesting because all of the conversations and all of the sort of the the scenarios that we that we have seen since 911 all the dramatic portrayals of things that have gone on the way the US has responded all of those things um everybody know i think everybody who watches those things Um, zero dark 30 who watches zero dark 30 or have this kind of implicit understanding that these things are all related and messy but but they but but sure but they certainly try to reassure themselves when they leave the theater that ah yeah okay i can sort of i can sort of leave that behind or we can sort of ignore that those things that are happening on the on the fringe as if they're aberrations or exceptions and i think post-secularism is simply saying listen it's it's It doesn't serve the interest of justice to ignore to ignore that to ignore that that this is an essential feature of those conversations. We're going to have to deal with it at some point someday if we don't now. You do you you do you you do you you do deal with it. You just deal with it in a way that is ultimately not effective because it's not. It's pushed to the margins, and it's it's pushed...
0: It's not comprehensive. It's It's, not a comprehensive intentional of of what it means to be human. Exactly. And and therefore, what it means to be a society and a a polis, I suppose, right? That's right. That's absolutely right. So, uh, if we could... The Zero Dark Thirty approach. So, you know, we leave the theater going, wow, those crazy fundamentalists. Yes. Right? Yes. Do you think... That the and we don't have to talk about uh, the Taliban necessarily or right wing evangelicals because I would put a lot of them in the same boat uh-huh. and 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 send it off to sea. But do you think those some of those uh, belief systems or those decisions that are made those crazy that you and I would probably call crazy decisions that are made are made in the name truly made in the name of religion, or are we really talking about again hatred, anger, um, power? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know this is not about religion. This is, you know, I, I watched Rendition recently. Um, not a great film. Um, a couple of years ago, when we kind of were, we got hit with all those uh, post-Iraq films. Yeah, yeah, and and they really, they, again, they characterize these Muslims in a, in a way that's frankly a bit offensive. Yeah, yeah, and, you yeah, know, just yeah. they're they're all crazy, and 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 I mean, there's a couple of scenes that stick out in my
1: mind, but there was this one guy in particular. Now you're not. Just to be clear, I didn't think Zero Dark Thirty did that. No, I don't think the film did either. No, no, no. no.
0: But I'm seeing people leave the theater. um, Some people, yeah, many people. Some people people leave the theater, and it may not even be a conscious thing, which I think actually reflects on Charles' notion, Taylor's notion of post-secularism. Yeah. That, that, oh, right, religion does play a role, and isn't it great that it doesn't here, but clearly it does over there still, and boy, we've got to get that sorted out. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's this, this, this judgment call that's made, and really... Man, coming from a development background, I'd almost argue there's a little bit of racism thrown in there as well. Sure. Right? All so these issues are entangled yeah. with one another, yeah, right?
1: Yeah, they totally... It's, well, this is the thing. Now, this now, is and this, I, well, and this takes us back to
0: Descartes. It exactly does, back to my question because about that's dualism. Because that's what's
1: motivating Descartes, Descartes in the so first too. place. It's, it's the religious wars in Europe.
0: Well, in doesn't, doesn't he in the meditations and the, and the discourse basically say, Oh, by the way, I still believe in a god, P.S.? <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna attack well, God. That's and a, here's what I want to do. But oh, yeah. by the way, Mister and Missus Catholic Church, I yeah. still very much believe in God. Because Galileo was basically on the chopping block at that point, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't.
1: I, I think that's a caricature of Descartes. Oh, okay, fair I enough. I think that's a caricatured view of Descartes himself. I think Descartes thought that the the kind of logic where you know where where one doubts everything, and then one sort of begins with what one knows about oneself. He actually felt that. That, that way of and, and then you could somehow conclude that God exists, right? Through right. that through that through that process. I thought that he was actually doing a service in in producing a, what we know, well what a kind of a secular a kind of a secularism where you we, where he could begin to sort of promote the idea that there are these different you know sort of spheres that um, um, can operate with some independence and relieve the pressures of at that po- at that point deep deep uh, interrelationships between religious and political spheres which we, is which is the other end of the spectrum right is, i mean yes. i mean what's some of the list, listeners to this to this podcast might ask then well what are you suggesting do should we right. you know should we expect religious governments? should we just expect you know is, yeah, is the u.s going to be readings in the house of commons exactly exactly Quran, you know. um and, and I, I that's no one who's in sort of invested or appreciative of the post-secular Post secularism argument, I think wants wants to advocate for that. Um, I think I think all they want to do is accomplish the, a more realistic understanding of how the of how those spheres are related, not to sort of reintegrate them and become you know for for example uh, the kind of system. I don't think we don't we don't want to emulate what's going on in Iran, a kind of a political system where the political are uh, and the religious are sort of identical to one another. We don't want to go back to those kinds of arrangements good
0: but you but you want it's almost like you're asking for um um wow imagine this a level of honesty
1: yeah oh yes and
0: transparency and authenticity and just and saying hang on a second here that sounds sort of right but it's not yeah (laughs) here's what's
1: actually going on sure sure yeah and what's i mean there are there are other ways in which ignoring this creates problems right now you have situations in in the uk and other places in the world that have had substantive uh, growth in Muslim populations in recent years, and now the Muslims are of such uh, population that they can vote in um, Sharia, right. you know, vote in right. their own avenues for pursuing justice in the administration of law and tolerance. And, I mean, I think that's that's a kind of a warning that stands there. It's like, well if you if you don't allow those conversations to happen in a transparent way in a straightforward way if you don't allow religious groups who are substantially who have a substantial presence in your country or in your local community to to be able to have to to express their ideas allowing their religious views to to show in those conversations then that's that's the only option they have left what what do you how do you you know tell, tell me about tolerance in your mind I mean, you know, uh,
0: mm-hmm. sometimes I think, and this is maybe a bit of an oversimplification again, but the moment you start talking about tolerance, you're actually sort mm. of assuming a lack of intolerance. Well, I'm going to tolerate you, Mark, because, you know, I find quite a bit about you pretty irritating. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to tolerate you. Yeah. Well, what's, what's good about that? What's gracious about that? What's, what's helpful about that? Is, is there anything helpful about that? I mean, the anyway, conversation anyway the, the, all that to say, you know, what,
1: what does religious tolerance mean, you know? It's, yeah, it's sure. Big,
0: big questions.
1: There have been um, what is what tolerance is 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 actually a very interesting on its own a very interesting topic on its own. Um, there are philosophers like Nick Walterstorf and down in the in the states and theologians down in the states, even an evangelical scholar uh, by the name of Don Carson, who have made the point, and I think rightly, <clears throat> that we tolerance has been completely redefined, and this happens in Canada. Tolerance means, for most people, I think means. I accept who you are and what you believe as as being equally true to what I am and to what I believe. And a a simple look at the dictionary will at the definition of the word tolerance shows that that how far that's come from what it's historically meant. Tolerance is is essentially that idea that there are people um, who have practices and ideas with which I disagree. That I don't find uh, appropriate, but big but I tolerate those things um, in the interest of some larger principle involving justice or involve the basic human rights or whatever that may whatever that might be. I remember going into a prison in Cambodia. Everything for me comes back to Cambodia,
0: by the way. Um, Mm -hmm. One particular lesson, we'll we'll laugh out loud there at that point. But I was in a prison in Cambodia, and uh, there had been some flooding. And I mean serious flooding, really serious flooding. And we get there, and some prisoners in this one uh, cell were still in the cell with the water up to their knees, no longer able to sleep on the piece of concrete that they had. I mean, we're talking about miserable conditions to begin with. And now we're basically talking about drowning in a fish tank with bars. I mean, insane, right? Can you mm-hmm. imagine what that's yeah. doing to you? And I remember leaving and saying to the, the 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 NGO leader that I was there with, how do you how do you make those decisions? How do you how do you basically how do you tolerate that? Yeah. And he took yeah. a completely utilitarian perspective and said, well, I, I I do because I I've got other issues that, in fact, believe it or not, are more serious. Yeah. You know. To do with with actual yeah. um, diseases and in, 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 in the corruption levels and so on that are going to affect the whole you know the common good yeah or the common welfare of the prison as a whole yeah and I hope and trust that within a year or two maybe I can address that that conversation yeah as sure well. sure so uh, that's that's kind of what you're talking about isn't it
1: sure that, that might be util- one of those utilitarian- that might be one of those larger pragmatic concerns yep. that you simply have to honor in the meantime. You know, sort of recognizing the messiness, recognizing, um, you know, that I can't really address that. We can't really address that. Um, now, this relates, obviously, also then to where one deciding where the limits of tolerance reside. Right. And that's 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 another byproduct of this. And that's where you now you're now you're you're drawing the conversation back into that role that government should play, and how do we how do you have those conversations among your constituents, your political constituents. Maybe I can give the readers a good example of tolerance. There's, this is an example that I that I've sometimes used in my classes, and that is, um, if for, if I if I visit a friend's home over the holidays, um, they invite me into their home. We're sitting there having coffee, we're eating holiday Christmas cookies, and th- this friend has this acquaintance of that I'm invited into their home has half a dozen small children, right? As we're sitting there having their conversation, these children begin to sort of climb all over me. Uh, one of the daughters begins to sort of pick apart, you know, some of some of the uh, sort of reach into my pockets and take out my cell phone and start playing with my cell phone. Um, you know, another deleting time
0: was, some of your most important contacts. sure yeah you know,
1: yeah you know <laughs> pick it, yeah exactly picking up you know picking out uh, my briefcase and starting going through my files and these kinds of things, um, and you know you know we've we've. We've had those kinds of experiences. All of us have had those kinds of things, it may be at maybe to a smaller degree, in restaurants and out in public and, and in places. Now, what do I do in that situation? I mean, obviously, this is these are kinds of behaviors that I would find inappropriate. Mm-hmm. That at some level I would find, uh, I would, if my children were doing that, I would find, I would, I would. Uh, uh, want to correct that behavior in my children and say, "Listen, this is not respectful behavior. You should not do that. You don't touch other people. You certainly don't reach into their pockets and do these things." And other things. but do I do I do that with my with these with the children of these parents who I'm, I'm I'm visiting? No, of course not. And why and why do I do that? Well, because there's some overriding principle of charity of great of honoring the graciousness of these people who have welcomed me into their home, of recognizing that the, the things that these children are doing ultimately may not you know be of such substance that they're going to sort of you know be of, of har- harming me in any re- real way it's just more of a nuisance than anything else um that's one example i think a very kind of on the ground kind of example of, of what tolerance that's what tolerance means so you can sort of ex- uh, project that out and say that that's essentially the kind of the kind of thing that tolerance should be thought about with respect to how religious groups right Live together live in together, in a yeah. in a, in a in Canada or in a nation or in a in a local community mm-hmm. in Ontario, southern Ontario, or whatever in a town.
0: Yeah. Do you think that um, we're coming coming near the end of uh, our time together? But do you do you think that? Uh, you know, I think it's around four. I've used the number four and a half billion religious people in the world, and that's pretty broad, but it's a lot of people. It's, it's probably, probably higher. In, it's probably higher. Incredible amount of wealth incredible amount of prestige and power and influence, could could we ever... Can't, I mean, is it ridiculous to assume that we could ever get on the same page with respect to an issue? Uh, pick any social justice-like issue that you want. You can go from climate oh. or environment. You could go, go human trafficking. You could go extreme poverty, you know, health issues. You know, the yeah. Rotary Club yeah, yeah. pretty much helped to eradicate polio. Yeah, yeah. Why the hell can Yeah, you know, four or five major religious yeah, that's groups right. get together and yeah. actually make a difference. It's just it makes me crazy. I,
1: I'm actually, I'm actually optimistic about that, I, and okay. I th- and I actually think that um, there are you can you can point to examples of that. Maybe in, in the in the U.S. is a good example um, where that where that has happened in the past. Where issue to issue to issue, you can find common cause, and then um, sort of. It's uh, a great phrase. Find common, common cause. cause and coordinate your efforts in certain regards. So this has happened in the U.S. where, where there are been, have been oftentimes historically where, where Jewish and Catholic and evangelical um, institutions and organizations find common cause and work together and coordinate efforts to pursue those things. There was I was just reading a, a very interesting history of, uh, of religious films in the U.S., and in the very early history of and this is maybe a negative example, but in the very early exam, history of, of, of filmmaking in the U.S., those there were there were uh, several moments where where Jew, conservative Jewish, Catholic, and evangelical groups organized together in order to address redress together some of what they saw as the corrupting influences of Hollywood. Hmm.
0: Right.
1: That's I mean that's a very simple practical example. Um, so yeah, issue to issue to issue, I think I think that that can be done, but it it can be done more easily in a place that that recognizes the porous character of re- religious subjectivity and political practices. Favorite film in the last 4 to 6 weeks or months. My favorite film yeah. in the last 4 to 6 months? Oh goodness. I I tend to be very uh critical of uh of films coming out did you see captain phillips no i don't even I oh don't, that's the know tom that.
0: Tom hanks film about the the somali pirate ship oh sure take, sure the great great i i thought it was terrific uh, yeah yeah um uh, i haven't seen a ton actually i haven't been able to get out to see to see a ton i uh, saw a couple at the festival um but but nothing nothing really has stood out for me other than 12 Years a Slave in the last uh, last couple of weeks. But we don't get out like we used to. Difficult, difficult film to, to, to watch for sure
1: at parts. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. anything yeah. grabbing you right now? Well, I'm actually doing a lot of the filmmaking I've been viewing is, is in anticipation. I teach a class on religion and film. Oh, okay. And um, so I was, I went, I I saw Tree of Life for the second time. I was going to
0: say is like your favorite filmmaker, Terrence Malick, because he read a lot of Heidegger. Terrence, yeah,
1: yeah. Terrence Malick. I like Terrence. Wes Anderson is a huge favorite of mine as well. Okay, nice. Um, So uh, Moonrise Kingdom. Right. Yes. Something is you talking about Moonrise Kingdom? um, I'm still, I'm still sort of processing.
0: PT PT Anderson.
1: Uh, There there will be blood. Magnolia. Sure. Oh, Magnolia. Sure. Sure. Magnolia is is really important. I think. Yeah, I, think um, so too. B- I can't B- show B- it to my class because what is it like four and a half, five, seven, you know, nineteen hours. <laughs> I, think I think it's seventeen hours. Yeah, seventeen yeah. hours. Yeah. I think like Magnolia DVDs, is the length. of... Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> it's a doozy. So yeah, I can't, I can't show that because it's they... a,
0: I remember watching that, and w- maybe we, we should wrap up soon. But but I saw Magnolia the first. I walked out of the theater. I was on a date, and I couldn't, t- I couldn't take it, Mark. I couldn't take it. I just, and I think I was because I was worried about my date, and I just went. This is the these characters are so one-dimensional and so tragic this is horrible oh yeah 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 and so we got up and we left you know 20 minutes before the end and of yeah. course you need to see it through to the end yeah and so i rented it i don't know a year two years later on v- vhs yeah. you know of course dating myself now and popped it in and wow i was just blown away
1: it was the a completely different around, film Blown. it was a completely away. different film yeah. because you watched the last 20 I watched, minutes i
0: lost yeah yeah it's
1: really yeah it's uh, it's a difficult film to watch
0: but yeah. but uh well, that's great. Religion and film. I think that sounds like a great course. Sounds like a lot of fun. Thanks for joining us uh, uh, today, uh, Mark. Um, thank you. We really yeah, thank appreciate you. it. Uh, we barely scratched the surface, as I often say with my uh, people that I interview. Uh, Mark Bowald, uh, Associate Professor at uh, Redeemer University College. You can probably find him somewhere online. Oh, I would imagine in a compromising photo or two. He's been uh, teaching here for <laughs> about nine years, and author of *Rendering the Word in Theological Hermeneutics: um, Mapping Divine and Human Agency*. Thanks again, and we'll uh, we'll talk to you soon.